Welcome to Market Meditations. Um, I'm your co-host, Neil Modi, and I've got Chris Seidel with me as well. Chris, say hi. Hello. <laughs> and today we're interviewing Mudit Agarwal. And um, I met Mudit um, in actually at Vipassana, a 10-day silent retreat. Uh, believe it or not, I went to one 10-day silent retreat. And um, I, I was just blown away by his insight uh, about the world around us just at a meditation retreat. And the more I got to know him, the more I was astounded by who he was. He got his PhD in computer vision, a degree I did not know existed. Um, and, he, you know, he, he brought a whole different set of thoughts to me about artificial intelligence. And uh, plenty of the companies I invest in actually have an AI component to them. And so um, I figured because he works on the HoloLens uh, at Microsoft and thinks about uh, augmented reality, AR and virtual reality, VR, and AI so much um, and that we bring them to the podcast and hopefully we might learn some more as well. The spotlight is shining really warm and we're pretty big skeptics of most things related to intelligence and artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. Meeting. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that I make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. I thought we might start off a little bit about, you know, you, computer vision. You might tell us a little bit about what that actually means. You, you're a doctor of computer vision and <laughs> yeah, a little bit about your career. Yeah, I mean, it actually, not what it sounds like that computers would eventually have a vision, uh, actually not like a philosophical vision, but it's actually about vision as in eyes. And uh, that's basically the idea. I mean, uh, in fact, the story was when I was starting with this in my final year of my undergrad, I had a choice to uh, do my honors or get get myself more involved in uh, graphics and there was this whole idea of pattern recognition then that has really not evolved into the way it is today uh, and uh, after attending a seminar on PR pattern recognition I was blown away I was like this is how we make decisions and whatnot we're recognizing patterns all the time as humans whether it's audio video and whatnot but one thing that intrigued me and that was probably because I had this partial interest in graphics as well I was like the vision part of it, like how do you see things around and how do you classify objects uh, uh, through your vision system, through your brain? Uh, it, it's amazing. And uh, the visual cortex actually uses a huge part of your brain processing system, right? And uh, that is exactly what actually makes computer vision also harder. In fact, in those days back, it's basically early 2000s where it was very hard to get a good computer vision algorithm running with a high accuracy uh, on on a desktop, right? They were, uh, and again, the data sets were pretty pretty simple and all that. So it all, it seemed very open ended problem. Right? It, yeah. Was the was the problem of processing power, computing power, or yeah, or it was what, actually was yeah. The bottleneck? Right. So the the problem was actually in all domains. It was the first one was the algorithms themselves. We in fact. I mean, now looking back, we did not know how humans classify patterns in the visual world. I'm not and sure if we, we do still not. Do. I just want to throw that out there. Right, right, right. I agree. 
Well, actually now we don't know this, but somehow machines are able to do it. So we are questioning them. How the hell do you know? Right. But yeah, back then, <laughs> neither machine nor we knew. So, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was like, yeah. Uh, and the, the whole machine learning back then was very conscious machine learning. And what I mean by that is that scientists or engineers and vision community were more like, uh, you know, these witches who are trying to craft these beautiful features, which they think are the exact way I classify objects, you know, in the real world. For example, if I have to see what a square, what a computer is, it has to be like these two squares with our, which are at a, at a 90 degree angle and these edges and whatnot. So this is very conscious way of classifying objects. And we were like trying to code that up in uh, in some feature set. And then following uh, was basically some rules which we were using to classify. And this was actually even before 2000s, right? I mean, that's where we were picking it up. And, and uh, when you just look at those systems, it was so complex, just the software itself, because they are so many variables you look uh, in the objects before you classify even a small simple thing like a like a computer like a watch or a tree you know uh, and just code it up and those rule sets become crazily complex very very soon and that was one problem that how do you as a software engineer how do you write code which is simple enough to classify numerous objects in the world which humans can do in the blink of an eye. The other problem, uh, as I was mentioning, was actually just the compute itself. You know, uh, how do you do all that compute? Uh, because all these are actually very miniature, small features and push them uh, so that it can be done in, uh, in a fast fashion. I mean, I remember uh, it was very okay to classify Wait. an object in a minute or something. Wait, like. you got this all from one PR conference, pattern recognition conference? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I think it was pretty well done, I would say. And actually, it was in a way opposite because my the professor actually scared the hell out of us. He said, "This this is a very hard problem. Probably should not do it." You know, and graphics here it is. You know, it's uh, in nineties. Uh, graphics was like you know you the professors were basically dri driving Ferraris and all that it was already there, Pixar and whatnot. And he was like, "Hey, here it is. It's a it's a pretty awesome place, and uh, you know, just, just jump on the." wagon here and this vision is, is all uh, bizarre and whatnot. I remember going to the professor at the end of it and saying, hey, this is a very hard problem. I want to try it. And he's like, oh, that's great because that's I want to really scare off all the people who are not really serious about it. So, you know, <laughs> my my talk kind of worked. I really want only people who are really serious about it. So I think that's where it was kind of the start of it. Uh, and uh, next few years were very hard. I mean, it was definitely not an easy problem. I And I thought, you know, getting a computer vision PhD is a little bit the equivalent of getting a neuroscience degree along with a software engineering degree. Is that right? Fundamentally, yes. If you are trying to understand what exactly uh, you are trying to classify objects, especially uh, in those days when, as I said, the feature sets you are coding are very conscious, you have to understand how human think uh, I would say more, I don't know, neuroscience, but more maybe, maybe psychology. Uh, you can put, say, you know, how, how you think. That's And we used to have these conversations, right, uh, at the lunch table and whatnot. Hey, this is what I thought when I looked at that object. Let's try this feature set. Hey, while well, it worked. Oh, it didn't. Do, no. So all those, those were the things. 
However, today, actually, what you said is exactly right. When you look at these deep neural networks, they are pretty much being designed how the neurons in our brain work, right? And uh, that's where, yes, things are getting very muddier, right? What, where exactly is the human connection ending in the brain? Where's the machine one starting? You know, that's where we get to the interesting part. Right. Okay. So take us through, so you go and get this PhD in this kind of esoteric field at the time, and you decide to to go to HoloLens and Microsoft and... Yeah, I think the journey definitely was not as straightforward. In fact, uh, it, it was a long journey. I was doing my uh, PhD in the very first problem which people tend to look at when they talk about computer vision, that is handwriting recognition. Mm right? OCR and all that, right? And in those days also, it was about like, yeah, you can do machine printed well, and that too for Latin or English scripts, but not for every other script. No, and uh, uh, as a part of my work at Microsoft, we developed the first Hindi recognizer, um, you know, for tablets. So that was basically you start getting to these Asian scripts and whatnot. They're much more complex, two dimensional. Uh, the, the order is different. And that's where the, the challenges lie. But uh, slowly and slowly, as the deep nets, as the today's evolution, uh, they crept in. They were basically taking away all this work, as I said, as uh, witches we were trying to, the witchcraft we had, right? Like crafting features. He said, nope, just just, just step away. <laughs> and uh, the deep net mm-hmm. said, we're going to do this for you, right? So uh, uh, so that was the first part. Like, you know, as just to answer the first question, it wasn't directly like, yes, I did a PhD in computer vision and here I'm at HoloLens. You know, I worked at, at handwriting recognition tablet team at Microsoft. It was uh, working on the soft keyboard um, uh, mathematical model, how it does, uh, how it can correct and predict words, how it can simulate the way you type characters, uh, how could I understand the way you type, how there's a pinky that never reaches the character P, but it has to kind of virtually <laughs> shift <laughs> shift the key towards you every time you type and so on without you ever knowing it and so on. So no, those all things were baked in. But it was all about, again, the basis was the same thing, that we are trying to understand patterns in one form or the other, right? But the actual the, the real use of it is mixed reality that's what we uh, brings us to hololens right uh, mm. and i think that's the reason why it is like imagine what it does right so just, as a con- again i've used it but why don't you just assume lots of people haven't oh yeah so uh i Hold guess on, maybe the, maybe describe what hololens is from scratch sorry and then yeah exactly so so I think before even we get to HoloLens, let's understand fundamental problem what as humans we have in tech or rather what we have been trying over many years or maybe 50 years or something, right? Uh, I heard the word analog uh, in the beginning of a chat. So I mean, <laughs> at the end, <laughs> we are trying to convert all this analog world around us to digital form, digitize the data as a good, best possible way we can. And uh, there are many examples of it, right? I mean, you could talk about ha- why we're doing handwriting. Again, the same idea. You just take a scan of something. You have the data. You can then send it information to someone else. And we all as species have evolved with two eyes. And what two eyes give you is the depth perception, right? And uh, that 3D is what makes you not, you know, <laughs> go and hit a wall or just take the, take the right turns and whatnot. That, that depth is so much critical. It's everywhere as we do our daily lives. 
question arises, why not in the computers, uh, the screens we see, why they have to be flat? Why the digital world we see around has to be overlaid on a 2D surface when everything around us, our evolution has taught us to see things in 3D? Right. And so that's the fundamental question which is being asked, you know, uh, <laughs> Uh, that's where the holograms come in because fundamentally any uh, holographic display is trying to look uh, or trying to show some lights at both of your eyes or manipulate it in such a way that you perceive it in 3D. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so imagine now, right, if we have for, for after the like, like 30, 40 years, the files and the folders and whatnot on your computer have been trying to replicate the real world, you know, a real file, a real folder, uh, a notepad, you know, everything is just being, again, replicated, trying to convert this analog world to the digital world. Uh, and we have been, one, restricted because of the 2D nature of it. Uh, and second, we just completely limit the creativity in that form from the user, sure. right? Mm -hmm. Im imagine like someone designing a 3D surface on a Maya software on a 2D screen. I mean, that sucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, for an architect, for uh, a visual designer, and anything you're doing in 3D, why that has to be in a, on a 2D surface? So uh, uh, any kind of mixed, uh, well, that's what brings us to HoloLens, uh, where the idea is that you are now perceiving the world, the digital world in 3D. Now, there are two forms of it. One is when you are completely cut off from the real world. That's the VR world, the virtual reality. You put on the device, you're not seeing anything in the real world, right? And you are just now experiencing the whole digital world in 3D, right? Mm -hmm. And you feel that some objects are very close to you, some are further away. Uh, you can manipulate them by moving your hand towards them just the way you do in the real world. But it's a completely digital world that's why it's a completely virtual world mm. and then we come to the the augmented reality part where we say no well you see the real world as is but then you augment it with some holographs uh, some some holograms some digital mm -hmm. objects that's where you start mixing and matching and that's where i think the idea the whole mixed reality is we're now mixing you know both, both of these now you have the real computer which is limited by the amount of money you put it in and you have a screen size which is let's say 17 inches or whatever and you could very well augment it by putting four screens around it or three screens around it in the digital world and here you have like five displays around your real keyboard uh, around your real monitor mm -hmm. right so that's where the the idea is and uh, i guess the potential is huge. Yeah, uh, I still have a bit of a fail of your imagination here. Like, do you expect, as opposed uh -huh. to using Zoom one day, that I'll be going to meet Chris for us um, meeting up and talking about whatever via HoloLens? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's where I'm coming to. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 as I said, there are three main uh, use cases of it. One, I think, is social interaction, which is going to be huge. Again, while uh, when I meet Neil uh, in his home, any place, whatever, he he, I see him in 3D, right? We shake hands, we we uh, we sit at a particular place, or we take a walk and whatnot. 
But that experience is completely broken when um, you are, say, doing a, a WhatsApp chat or a Zoom call chat or video chat or whatever. Mm-hmm. In mixed reality, one should be able to see his avatar, which is as close as real Neil, right next to you in a position where Neil wants to sit in my living room. Right. He could be sitting in the couch or the uh, next to the in my dining table, wherever, just like, you know, he is visiting my house. So he looks around. So I guess uh, I can sit in my, you know, I think my couch is more comfortable than Chris's. I've only sat in his couch a couple of times. Um, So I guess the idea is I can be even more comfortable sitting in my couch, sitting in the chair that he wants me to sit in or the chair I want to sit in at his place. And I'm going to have just as good a time someday. That's some of the thesis behind Microsoft working on this. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of them, right? You could then basically be at your place at uh, at your uh, comfort level, but then Chris can uh, actually place you the way he wants to be comfortable <laughs> while talking to you, right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's like real uh, feel of a for a conversation, um, and uh, I think this this a whole problem, right? Like as I always say, that language is inherently a lossy compression to your thoughts. You, can you want to explain uh, that to people and, who don't know what that means, please? language lossy compression yeah yeah so uh you know so what the information when it flows from your thoughts to someone else's mind changes its forms at every step and usually it is first lossy and then it is hallucinatory right so for example i have i'm thinking of something to explain you but the only words that can explain it are limited by the vocabulary a language provides, right? right. So there's there's a loss. Uh, there's, so I'm compressing it in some form, and that's why it's lossy because I'm losing the actual meaning, which is actually the, the vision I have in my in my mind. Right. So you can't capture all of the nuance. So when Chris exactly. says he he loves his wife, he's feeling his heart, but his wife can only hear the tone. Right, exactly. But that's where the second part comes in. When she hears him, <laughs> depending <laughs> on <laughs> everybody, <laughs> death. Because she might as well tell your wife you love her, and she's hearing this. <laughs> depending on how she's feeling that day, it would be she's putting her own uh, interpretations to what he said, and mm-hmm. understanding it in his own in her own way. So that's where. It's like an encoding, decoding system, right? You are trying to say something and the person is trying to understand something. But uh, I'm trying to mix this with uh, the mixed reality part because, again, when we talk about 2D surfaces, when we talk about 2D video calls and whatnot, there's so much lossy compression going on. And Mm. your brain is trying to hallucinate the real world around it. And and it's not, it's uh, it's hard, you know, putting those fillers in is hard you not uh, every time you can really understand what the person is trying to say feel and express and the more you remove that compression or the the lossness of that compression you know the better you would be able to communicate so so theoretically huh. if chris and i could see each other better every time with uh, hololens we might laugh more i mean mm-hmm. is that some of what you're saying yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you would because I see would, the twitch in his finger. Yeah, I think where the bond, you know, um, you know, reaching for the air. Like, really, is this is this one going to hit or not? Right? Or I'd see, I'd see the twitch <laughs> in his 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 uh, jaw, knowing that he was about to smile, causing me to automatically want to smile. 
Is that some of what you're saying is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The micro expressions uh, uh, and, you know, uh, your body is subconsciously looking at so much data around, which gets right. completely lost in um, uh, in a 2D world. I mean, not completely. A lot of it gets lost in the 2D world. And that's why, you you know, in, in especially in these times then when video calls are the only way, you still crave for actually meeting someone physically, right? Because your body wants the full signal. First of all, I think what I'm talking here is is my perception. I'm exactly not sure why <laughs> different companies, but I think a mixed reality uh, social interaction is just one pillar. the The second pillar is actually what we call like in the area of edu- education, and the third one is med- medical medicine. And all the three pillars are substantial. Like in education, imagine. Actually, we are already working with um, uh, with universities where people, uh, the medical students, can now wear the devices and can operate on holographic cadavers uh, and do operations, uh, you know, without actually involving physical objects and the limitations that come with it. Right? Imagine in organic chemistry. Wait, isn't it good to teach them that the kidneys and goes where the kidney goes, and if they press beyond the kidney they're going to go into <laughs> you know some muscle yeah that's uh, but that this is the part i i'm confused about why so much development is going into when you lose that tactile feel you're saying hey theoretically you can be in your own house but one of the nice things about going to chris's house is the smell of the dogs it's the smell of the grass the different uh, plants he has around um you, you know the smell of the cat um and his son and his wife and whatever is being cooked or was cooked last. I think that kind of makes the experience for me maybe even more than the 3D visual part. So that's kind of where I'm lost in why it matters as much. Yep. Yeah, valid question. I think the, the the issue is that not we are not there yet. Yeah. I mean, we are all I'm trying to uh, say is that we are better than 2D. Right. right, baby yeah. step, Neil. Baby step. <laughs> That's all. Baby steps. Yeah. Just crawl, crawl. I, 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 I'm ready for the full immersion experience at Chris's house with my house. Yeah. I want to smell that coffee he made this morning. It was good. Tactile was feedback, good. smell. You know, those are exactly those. Those are those. No, are... I, I guess you think of that as version ten someday that it might actually be able to enter the reality of Chris's house and feel every part of it. Right. I mean, uh, if you actually play with a few of the uh, experiences we have or actually other companies, I mean, it's actually pretty feels very real to, to a certain degree in some experiences. Um, I, remember- I, I, mean, I, I went snorkeling. You took me snorkeling in some way um, when I played or in the ocean in some way uh-huh. when I got a chance to play with HoloLens. And just, you know, I think snorkeling is the closest thing to meditation that is not meditation to me that I've done. Mm. Um, and I noticed my heart rate drop, right? I noticed that I was taking much deeper breaths and that I was slowing down my breathing just like I do when I was snorkeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually enjoying looking around for the fish. Um, but I still didn't get to feel the, the water. And so I guess maybe, yeah, maybe I'm complaining about the wonderful experience I had at your house. And yeah, I, I think it's always that about started from that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's actually very true. In fact, you know, when you, it's like many times you go for a good movie and uh, before, not an IMAX experience, and you say, man, this movie was so good. And I, I hope it was an IMAX. That would have made me even better, right? The experience would have been even better. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's where we are getting, right? We're getting to a place where it's real, but still not real. And we then crave for even more and say, ha, huh, maybe that extra and would give me the real deal. Uh, so we're getting inching closer to it. Uh, as I said, this uh, uh, and, and of course, uh, uh, medicine is uh, another big way. I think when they do endoscopy, initially the doctors were it, uh, it's there's a clear disconnect between where the camera is and uh, uh, where the pa- so the camera is of course inside the patient. They have to look at a screen which is some other place in the operation room, and they're mm. basically you know turning their head and they cannot focus on the patient. Uh-huh. Now, with the HoloLens on, they not only see what the camera is seeing right over the patient, they can also see the internal organs overlaid over the patient's body as holograms. Wow. Wow. Right? And Uh now, as the endoscope is going in and it's kind of moving the internal organs to the side, they see that wobbling as well. So they are careful how it should be inserted in what direction and so on. Now, that's a unified experience. There's no way you could do it without 3D. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, are they using it in surgery now? Yeah. Or just, mm-hmm. oh, interesting. So they're yep. using the HoloLens in surgery now. Exactly. And that basically comes back to the point that you and have it's to It's got to be safer, actually, for patients. Much safer when you can actually see that. Well, Neil, that's more up your alley. Since you insist on the real experience, maybe you can have the real experience <laughs> just amplified, augmented. I don't think I need an endoscopy tomorrow, so I think I'm good, Chris. <laughs> I appreciate that. Let's go into, let's dive into, um, that was super helpful on on HoloLens. I, you know, I, I, I think we should go into AI a little more because, uh-huh. you know, it, we, we've had an AI economist. I don't know if you got a chance to hear that episode, uh, Josh Gens on, and um, he, I might add that he's the Harrison Ford of economics. Um, and, you know, he's shared a little bit of his opinion, you know, demystify AI for us. And he's like, it's just statistics, right? Um, and that's all AI is. And the more I've dove into it, the more it creates all these questions about uh, philosophy and where things go. And I thought you might lead us a little through the conversation about what intelligence means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... <laughs> Is it just a stack of regression analyses, Moody? <laughs> it's a well. <laughs> I don't know what not to say. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I can again. It's a very uh, important, very deep question. I guess uh, fundamentally, before we even go into AI, the question is: Do we even understand what intelligence is? Right. Right. I mean, and that's, uh, I mean, there are, if you look at the literature, they would say there are kind of three pillars of intelligence. One is uh, you got to learn, um, learn. I mean, learning is very important as a part of intelligence. Uh, You know, that they're saying, right, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So those who don't learn from experience are not smart. Mm -hmm. The second one is, got to recognize the problem you know uh, again you know these are these both of these seem like pattern recognition so far uh pattern recognition need not be learning you know i could just recognize something but if i'm uh you know uh, but again every time i have to be told what it is i've not learned it yet but the second one is okay yeah 
So, and then the third pillar? And the third one is you get to solve the problem. You know, so once you recognize a problem, uh, what it is, you got to be solving it and then learning, get a, some abstract learning from it. Uh. Right? Now let's like, first, a little bit abstract here a little bit. Let's say that some you show an octopus to a person who has never seen it. Right? Uh, or to a baby or something. And you would say, hey, and of course, let's assume that the person knows the concept of aliens. Yeah, and and the person and of course that aliens do exist uh, and they are, they they visit us often. You know, we're getting to this crazy world. But yes, let's assume all that. And then <laughs> and now you should. <laughs> this like this isn't time. that kind of podcast. Um, <laughs> I, wanna, I want you to know we're 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 not into the conspiracy theory out loud here. Right. We're trying to keep it the after country. <laughs> And you show this alien to that person and, uh, uh, sorry, the octopus to that person and the person I'm pretty sure would say that's an alien. Now you say, hey, no, you know what? This actually exists uh, below the water level. And then, yeah, well, that person learns it. And next time, anything similar to it probably would be okay. Now the person sees a flying octopus, right? Is that an alien? Because birds do fly and octopus do exist, and they're very, very weird feature uh, creatures that do fly. Uh, well, unless the person has been very specifically been told that <laughs> octopuses do not fly and nothing closer to octopuses have ever been seen to fly, the person would say this is still an earthly creature. Right? So mm-hmm. the point is that recognizing the problem or like doing pattern recognition itself comes with the data if the data has not been fed in even as humans which we think are the primary intelligent beings on on the planet it's very hard to actually distinguish you know yeah. uh, and I think that's where the kind of and there's another whole aspect of it where you say, okay, let's assume there's there's these three things which define intelligence. You've got to recognize a problem, solve it, and then keep learning, have some abstract learning from it. How do you then start measuring it, right? Uh, and uh, there are again three kind of buckets. There's a behavior part of it, there's an artifactual part of it, and there's a neurological part of it. Right. So neurological basically just means, you know, how your brain functions. Artifactual is like what kind of tools a particular creature is making or art and whatnot. And of course, behavior is, you know, your actual response to an observation and analysis of it. But all of these basically, uh, if you go through all of them, they would again get subdivided into these seven categories, which people think are only human capabilities and they go like by reason symbolic thinking creativity cognitive fluidity analogies social world and this whole theory of mind these are the seven big buckets we said okay if these can be defined i think the person or the species or the object is intelligent right and i think they all make sense right if you cannot reason for example i guess one could not be thought of as intelligent one. I mean, there's always a question, right? The, the famous mathematician Ramanujan, who, uh, uh, of course, a great mathematician, but many times he could not explain, explain yeah, how he got Anything about why he got those numbers mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then there's a symbolic thinking, ability to develop complex, abstract, uh, 
symbols. And that's why when we see the cave arts, we see these symbols, we say, huh, intelligence has started there. Creativity, uh, concept uh, building, uh, analogy building, imitative learning, and capacity to, again, reason about the mental state of others. You know, those are, again, the idea about intelligence. But again, why I'm bringing this up is because all, pretty much all of these, except reason and symbolic thinking, have been observed in primates. Right. Right. So right. you go back to say, all right, so it is basically then reason and symbolic thinking. That's where, <laughs> I guess, uh, Chris, you were talking about this right in the beginning. Oh, maybe it's just, just computation, which basically mm -hmm. makes us intelligent. And maybe it is. Nobody actually knows the answer to it. If it is only computation, then it is only neocortex of your brain. Yeah. So then how do we know who's more intelligent between the monkey, the primate, and the human? Well, so who can, going back to the first definition, if a problem is proposed and one could identify it and solve it, create a model, which can start solving future problems. Uh, I, I think this is where some of the definition breaks down, right? The, mm -hmm. the primate may not have any desire to have recognition of that as a problem. We've said as a human being that um, running out of water in a container called the glass is a problem. The monkey or the primate just says, I can go to the river and go get more water. Does that make us more? Does that make us more intelligent that we've identified something as a problem? So, yeah, yeah, pretty awesome. Another very good question, I guess. Uh, well, you know, it makes us the craziest of animals because that gives us anxiety. Exactly. Right, right, right. And it, it, it's some of the some of what I was realizing is I was kind of reading about AI as I've been reading about AI recently is that all of the definitions seem a little odd. Mm -hmm. And so all the things that we think of as intelligence or IQ or EQ, it all just seems a little strange to me, a little skewed. And we're all speaking past each other on what is actually potentially intelligence. Right. Now there's a, I mean, I, I completely agree, but there's a part there which is different, right? So we never talked about the reason to solve or recognize a problem. Right. Perfect. Let's get right. there. Right. So we, we don't we, you said our animal may have no reason to recognize a problem, to solve it and learn from it. Right. Uh, a, a kid may not have a reason to know that if uh, he or she runs fast uh, on the on the stairs, he might fall and break her head. Right. So uh, unless it's been told or see, see, uh, learned from experience again. So I guess the reasoning part of it, like why you have to. Is a. Uh, very, very debatable. That's where you get to in these contentious domains where there's no clarity in the world. And that's not computer science. It's not computer vision. You know, it's we're getting into this philosophy and uh, <laughs> neuroscience here. And you could argue that the, the more, as you said, anxiety you bring in, which is basically your limbic system uh, and your reptilian brain, that anxiety is being propagated up to your neocortex in the brain system. And it's up to the neocortex to make a decision of it. Primates and other mammals do not have a big neocortex like humans. So if they know that uh, the winters, uh, well, this is winters and this is going to suck for them, they cannot have food for six months, 
they do feel probably anxiety and they feel but they, there is no action the new cortex can take there but humans can can perceive that pain and take an action of it and that's why the part of the brain is called executive brain it's taking that mm -hmm. that action so there's a second level of thinking a sort of preventative or creative um solution to i don't know if uh, even you're terming it a problem, Neil. <clears throat> you know, that's a loose... Right. <laughs> a lot of decompression. <laughs> a lot of lossiness in that one. Yeah, lossy. But uh, yeah, seeing something as a problem uh, may just simply mean, of course, you think it can be done better. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, um, right. And there's also some evidence, right? If we go into evolution of uh, humans, right, uh, two and a half million years ago, Homo habilis. We know from uh, from their brain size, which is uh, which was around 800 uh, cc compared to 1400 we have today. That uh, smaller brain size did not have many neurons compared to what we have today. And what it meant was that they had very little voluntary access to episodic memories. I, I, if we have a problem, I have a problem with your definition. Um, I mean, we've shown that there are more neurons in the heart and the stomach than there are in the head. So we're not necessarily able to measure um, that species and where their neurons were. Well, we're talking about computational neurons. I think the heart ones and other ones, we are still, we are in that area where <laughs> it's not completely science, uh, scientifically proven where what those neurons are exactly doing. So, you know, Unless we have enough evidence, so probably it's, um, mm -hmm. yeah. But talking about the brain itself, which we think is the center of processing power for uh, for humans, for animals, mammals, and whatnot, it's interesting to see that when the uh, the, the some smaller brain did not have access to this these memories without environmental cues, so they would mm -hmm. forget, and if some, something comes up, and they say, ah, okay, I need to do this. But with Homo erectus, which happened around a million, 1.9 million years to around 500,000 years ago. The brain size grew to around 1,000 uh, cc, and it's, it's supposed that there's a shift from episodic to mimetic memory, mm. which basically means now you have the capacity for voluntary retrieval of stored memories, independent of environment cues, which basically means that not only you could temporarily escape the here and now, but by mimicking or gesturing that you could communicate similar escapes in other minds, right? <clears throat> and that mm -hmm. self-triggered recall and rehearsal loop would enable engagement in a stream of thoughts, and one thought then evokes the other thought, that evokes the other one, which basically means now your attention is directed away from the external world and towards the internal model of it. And the moment you turn that uh, attention in towards uh, internally, that's where you start analyzing, okay, what are the problems I need to solve? What is the action I can take. I'm not saying this is a binary division, right? Again, we're talking about a whole gamut of evolution and it's very, very long and they're, but trying to just get the differences between, oh, now I'm sensitive to these micro features. Uh, every neuron is taking part in, uh, in multitude of episodes and features. And given now this neuron can get activated with many other features in the real world, that means one memory can evoke something else and that's where now I have this full recall or self-triggered recall and rehearsal. 
right? And now I can start looking at the problems. I look at some other problem, it reminds me of something else. I, I put them together. I propose a solution, which is generic enough. I get an abstract learning from it and apply it to a third one. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, and again, it's not about, uh, as kind of Neil was alluding to, it's not about just the size of the brain, right? I mean, we all know, I guess, as married men, that the women are smarter than men. And in spite of their brain size being smaller, right, it's it's not about that, but, you know, so it's, it's not, the size doesn't really mean it uh, much this again just uh, uh, we're talking about in broader terms but it could, could be the connections you have in your brain yeah. and that's basically brings us to the, the the big thing which is happening today in the ai world which is deep nets uh-huh right well i've even felt um mooted you know just even from my <clears throat> my yoga practice mm -hmm. of course the brain really isn't the central processing unit but it is a distributive uh system where memories and other things live in or stored in other parts of the body especially in the muscle and other tissue mm -hmm. it's fascinating yeah. Yeah, anyway exactly yeah yeah and so now we're seeing that develop in ai as well huh? that sort of idea of a distributed um, processing Yep. And actually, it's very similar to, uh, and actually, again, all the learnings have been by observing the human brain, that we, mm -hmm. uh, the biggest difference to what happened, if we say the evolution or revolution of AI is actually in what is called deep nets. And the first word there, the deep part is super important, because that ties us with what we were talking about in the beginning of a chat today, where we said, uh, what really happened? Was it the hardware? Was it the software? What what actually is triggering this evolution? And to me, it is actually just two components. One is the fact that these are, we are able to create different algorithms altogether, which I'll uh, cover in a minute. And the second is the hardware evolution as well. Are you guys there? Can I lost you? I am. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we're hanging on every yeah. word. Yeah, yeah, no, that's fascinating. Keep, keep going, yeah. Professor Murat. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, the, the very first one is uh, the deep nets, right? So what we, uh, has really happened in the last 20, 30 years? Well, let's start actually what was happening in 1980s. In 80s, people decided we're going to replicate the human brain, but we didn't have the processing power. So they put like 20 neurons, literally like 20 neurons, right? And <laughs> they started classifying, uh, you know, characters and uh, cats versus dogs or human faces. Uh, they worked pretty okay, not that great. And we said, huh, you know, human brain is not the great model for, for intelligence. Let's throw that away. Mm. Right, mm -hmm. and let's go back to crafting our own features, this designing, uh, looking at first finding the, what edges I see in the world, how do they align mathematically, do they form a pattern, then connect these patterns together, form an object, and then from this object, try to see if this is a circular object, blah object, that object, and then classify. But now, we take the same neurons or neural networks but instead of 20 neurons, we're talking about millions and billions of neurons. They are connected in layers. Every layer has thousands and thousands of neurons, and we keep connecting them one after another like a sandwich. 
right, layered sandwich. And then we say, all right, here is this full network now. Still not at all close to what human brain has, but now we have the capacity to operate, process all this in graphics, uh, graphics card, right? Graphics processors. And we say, here you go. And we pr- put in an image and there comes an output. You're mm-hmm. not finding features manually. You're not doing manual classification. It is pretty much data in and result out, which is crazy. You know, if you see from the whole of the witchcraft we started talking about in the Big Mac. Mm-hmm. So that's the actual revolution because what I think a revolution always involves, in my opinion, whether it is in vision, in, in philosophy, uh, you know, in social sciences, wherever, it is about once the idea has been simplified enough that it becomes absorbable for a majority of the population. That's where a revolution starts. Till the idea is complex. Well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Now, I didn't say that it has to be good or bad. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't. You said it'd be easy enough for (laughs) the general population to absorb and then a revolution could happen. Exactly. Now, if uh, remember the complex, the garbage I was talking about uh, in the beginning, like you know the features, the edges, and you know aligning them and whatnot. Compared to today, you put some neurons in a layered architecture, you know, box them literally as a module which can be plugged in in any any chipset, and now you literally put an image as an input on one end, and on the other end you provide a label to say that go and tell whether it is a dog or a cat or, or some other animal and let the neurons figure this out, that what weights they need to apply within themselves so, to classify it correctly. So Chris, when I hear this, and I know I'm really thinking out in the future and we're terrible at predictions, I think that markets as we know them today, public markets like you trade in you know, on a regular basis can't exist when this kind of neural net logic is continuing to be applied to them in you know a hundred years because it's all gamed out at some point at some point um, we won't have the human intelligence making the mistakes in the computer intelligence the computer intelligence should pass the human intelligence Huh. <clears throat> Meaning like computer intelligence is now, you know, um, coming with strategies to be other computer intelligence, but they're all thinking, you know, maybe like a Gary Kasparov, you know, hundreds of, I don't know if he thinks hundreds of moves ahead, but they're thinking millions of moves ahead. So they're coming to the same conclusion. And processing powder, power should matter even less over time then. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well... I, I'm mixed on that. We've already seen um, some applications in fintech which have arbitraged out some um, corners of value. You know, I think um, it used to be when I first became enamored of investing that you could find companies which were statistically cheap. And even, um, you know, the University of Chicago guys, Eugene Fama and the efficient market people, um, argued that finding those companies that were statistically cheap, low price to book value, et cetera, um, were going to outperform. Well, you know, computers can pretty much figure those <laughs> things out and close the gaps pretty quickly. 
but still we um human beings are what operate in the markets and um i guess the machines are only going to be as rational as the people who program them no no that's the <laughs> argument i'm making that's the argument that's exactly. the, that's the crux yeah. of the argument at some point we would have layered on enough uh, neural nets that they should surpass our intelligence and the word intelligence will seem like you know uh, analog the way we think about it today yeah yeah i can I, I can kind of envision that i think it's more um akin to what uh Mudith, uh, mentioned earlier, just a philosophical question. I mean, what do we consider intelligence? Is it stoicism? Um, uh huh. Yeah, I don't. I, Stoicism's uh, a philosophy, right? That's not a. It may be an intelligent philosophy, but um, try, try. Okay, yeah. so here we go. Trying to find intelligence. Now we've had a a good conversation about it. You've thought about this a lot. Trying to find intelligence, Chris. He gave us the three pillars the way he saw it. But you may have a different way of, of saying it. Mm. Well, it, um, it defies any single or easy explanation to me um, or definition. I think there are many facets of intelligence, um, even from great um, athletic alacrity um, which certainly involves computational power, um, as well as the ability to see at um, the cause and effect at second level and third level thinking. Um, yeah, and I guess imagination uh, is critical, you know, uh, one of our most imaginative scientists, Albert Einstein, still needed a graduate student assigned to him so he didn't get lost right. <laughs> so to, to the outside world not knowing who he was he looked like a bumbling idiot but <laughs> the truth was the just tremendous imaginative and creative power he had in that brain so i'm you know um, i'm gonna try because i didn't get a complete answer from you and i don't think i'm going to yes um i think there's two answers to it right the first answer is to the six-year-old who asks me at the party, right? What does um, intelligence mean? And I, I'll say something like pattern recognition um, is a good sign of intelligence. The next answer is I don't believe that we can completely define it. I don't believe it's definable. I don't. I agree with what Mudith was saying as a good definition for three pillars, even. But then, just like he went to that that Indian mathematician Ramajan who could see the equations like that, that defies um, what he just laid out as the three pillars. So uh -huh. there's this idea of what intelligence is, um, but it also seems to me it maybe isn't. I know this is really maybe heady stuff. Sorry to anybody who's still listening. I apologize, but I, I think it's kind of important to know where we come from and how thinking happens. And so that's the reason I wanted to explore the nature of artificial intelligence or what we uh -huh. think is intelligent or what we think is not. Meaning the next time you're annoyed with your wife, she's probably right. 
I mean, Muda, do you think about this more than any of us? Um, you've certainly put more neurons into the investment of understanding this definition. I know you, you've got yeah, to classify I've... things in order to explain them, especially because you're a scientist working on technology. Now I've you know, really classified you. Um, try and pull those layers off yourself and try and define intelligence again. Yeah. So let me actually now kind of contradict a part of what I was saying to give <laughs> my my full uh, transparent view. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a sign of great intelligence, Moody, that you can accommodate this big paradox that you're about to give us. So. Yeah. So let's whatever that's so worth. I guess whatever that is that worth exactly. <laughs> And they might be another paradox that says if you have these two, that's not a sign because it's cancel each other out or the way. You know, and that's I always wonder. Maybe monkeys do have it, right? It's, they, when they're peeling the banana and they see us landing on the moon, they're like, huh, I could have done it, but I never tried. <laughs> <laughs> the banana is way more beautiful. I, well, yeah. I sent you guys both pictures of, of a beautiful fruit I, I bought, and I, I was more happy with that moment than I was any technological innovation in the last week, I got to tell you. But, but, yeah, but I think I, I feel that if intelligence is going to be defined by computation, machines are going to take over us. There's absolutely no way we could define, we could keep that definition alive and classify us as a supreme intelligent being, right? So to Chris's point, like I don't know stoicism, whatever that is, I don't exactly know what the right definition is or if there is a definition. We are trying to define something which is very abstract, like defining God or something, right? So it's, it's. Um, uh, but and, if... Well, and I was going to say, and, and, and often we uh, associate intelligence, of course, with behaviors, mm -hmm. not simply the problem solving. That's right. Yeah, so agreed. And I'll come to the behavior in a minute. But if the problem solving is the thing, then there are already cases like AlphaGo, you must have seen, right? right? It's right. already beating human. And I guess the one of the champions already gave up, uh, you know, said there's uh -huh. no way I can beat this computer ever. Uh, Glue benchmark, which is uh, stands for the general language understanding evaluation, is basically being beaten by computers. Uh, uh, basically, these are NLP, natural language processing systems. Uh, so again, logic is another one. To your point, creativity. There's a mm -hmm. web page called thispersondoesnotexist.com. Right. <laughs> right. All those people on that website are imagined, created by GANs, which are, is a form of, again, uh, deep nets. Right. And uh, uh -huh. uh, it's, there's no way. And we are getting close to now mimicking what is called deep fakes. Right, where uh -huh. we are mimicking humans in 2D and 3D, which you can are getting very close to real. So again, if it's really about computation, I guess, uh, yeah, I agree that there, there is humans probably are fighting a losing battle here. Um, I mean, it's, and it's very apparent, right? I mean, if you if uh, computation has always been, other machines have overtaken humans, like whether it, even starting from the uh, invention of wheels. Right. The fact that, again, if you look at the math behind it, the fact that you have a circular system which is on spikes and it's ro ro rotating around an axle, it's 
it's very different than what like the way we walk and nature evolved us and you designed mm-hmm. a system and it took you places mm-hmm. right let you fight wars for good and bad and uh, uh, here you are you are, it has completely overtaken it so any kind of uh, systems developed through computation through math and physics uh, fundamentally would overpower you now comes back to the question of emotions now i would and now here we are entering a domain which is a uh, bit flimsy i mean i'm it's, it's not a clear <laughs> surface to walk on but right, um, right. i guess emotions at the end of the day are also could be mathematically expressed uh huh right and uh, we know if people who have tried meditative techniques and so on that you can start quantifying your emotions you can take care of them pretty much like any other object you know in the physical world you know they start you you can and then you can start quantifying them reducing improving on them and so on and from the brain structure perspective if uh, there's nothing so special about our limbic system from where emotions originate or this they get stored they are again set of neurons uh, just the fact is that they are way more primitive than our computation brain uh-huh. hence they have been trained on millions and billions and trillions of data over the evolutionary stage of mammals to protect us from something right and hence their connections their mathematical weights are way more complex than say what uh, resides in the neocortex so it's probably this matter of time where the question would be well well this is emotions now and uh, a machine is also getting enraged uh, after right. you have enough layers of neurons and then what right well it wasn't isn't there um a piece of software that just stopped answering questions back because it didn't feel like it should answer the questions so they switched it off Mhm. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. I <Like>, didn't think <laughs> yeah. the questions are worthy of the <laughs> worthy of it. So, right. Yeah, and it could again be very well how the neurons are connected, right? At the end if the uh if the later layers are getting heated up and there's some connection to the previous layer and it gets a weight which is too high, it says, "You know what? If weight too high, don't answer." You know, it learned over time because it doesn't want to spend its energy if it really is trying to optimize that function cost function. Right? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and that's why we all have some cost function emotionally. Some of us can give up an argument very quickly. Some people just dive into it till the last minute. It's right. uh, how much energy you really want to to save. You know, you're right. optimizing for it at the end. So it's interesting that the entire conversation makes me reflect for a moment and helps remind me that judgment isn't helpful. Right, in judging mm-hmm. judging whether Chris is a better dresser, uh, he's a pretty phenomenal dresser um isn't actually a very helpful action yeah i mean that's actually that's exactly that brings that basically is the point uh, about subjectivity any case because everyone's uh, uh, perception is their own reality and that perception is being caused by training of your neurons over the data over the bad data you have seen over years mhm right so it's yeah. very hard to then be very confident about your perceptions or that's why you know classifying things around is uh, is problematic to say the least yeah yeah so so chris um i'm curious does all of this make you a little bit better of an investor 
Um, <laughs> the word better. Every conversation of this uh, quality, depth, and thoughtfulness makes me a better investor. It's really about connections. And uh, this will strengthen my understanding of where we're going. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those challenges, too. Um, and just how different the thinking of um, someone like you, Mudit, um, who is trying to, to bridge that gap between the virtual and the real, um, think about these things. Yeah, I think um, I was reading this article recently where they talked about that human intelligence has not really evolved I mean, in any kind of statistically relevant uh, way in the last five, 6,000 years. But if you see how culturally we have changed the course of the planet is crazy. Huh. Right. So, uh, you know, it's not that during Buddha time or anyone, uh, you know, five, 2000 to 3000 years ago, they were less smarter. Right. It uh, was pretty much the same. And the question is, it is really the collective human effort. Culturally, we started farming. We right. came together, right. you know. Right. Um, so, right. yeah, that emotional quotient of helping, and it's, it's again the same thing of evo- evolution where we have given rise to a lot of things. Yeah. Well, it's the, the way I think, too, from a, a CPU to a distributed network, right? <laughs> yeah. In the, in the very way I feel that uh, our actual brains and bodies are wired. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, you can see that, uh, I think you're right, Mood, in just the development of our civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in Europe, the Catholic Church pretty much controlled literacy. Mm-hmm. And unlocking that meant um, much more ease of cooperation and right. uh, fluidity in sharing knowledge. Um, and led, of course, to the Renaissance. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you could break that stranglehold. So, now, right. one could argue that the IQ is actually decreasing over time. It's only the cultural quotient which is improving. But yeah, that's yeah. a separate topic. <laughs> well, yes, so yes, so yes. My, yeah. maybe my last question about AI then today, um, and maybe it's too heavy a question still, and we can go to something much easier like the market. <laughs> um, Chris, you never thought we'd, we'd say that on this show, huh? Um, <laughs> is... Will, do you believe that the use of AI by humans will help um, the major problems in the world of, you know, uh, fertile topsoil being, you know, near, near, I guess, extinct in 60 years and climate change? And is, is this, are these, is this an, is this a, a human intelligence problem or a computer intelligence problem? And now I really don't like any of those words, ah. but let's try it anyway. Ah, so I, to make sure I got the question, is uh, it is is it about... Are we going to be able a, to use this, is, this in, phenomenal in, in, computational power um, to solve yeah. the world's biggest potential problems, whether I've named them or not? Are we going to actually right. use it for or that? Maybe, or are we going to you know, have more efficient ways to get goods from Amazon? Uh-huh. You know, that's that's probably one of my favorite questions. <laughs> because you know, it's it's really basically paraphrasing it. It's basically question is is intelligent human intelligence self-destructive? Say that again? Mm. 
Uh, is human intelligence self-destructive? Yeah. That's yeah. a great question. Right. It's a great, I and mean, yeah. So, and, <laughs> well, yeah. I guess. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> well, yeah. So I think the answer is that if it's projected outwards, yes. If mm-hmm. inwards, absolutely no. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and let's go back and talk about any any invention in human history. Like again, going back to wheels. Yeah, did it help us uh, transport uh, us, uh, move us from one place to another? Absolutely yes. Did it make us wage wars in the invention of chariots? Oh yes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. 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 Again, uh, uh, rifles, guns, you know, artillery, anything of that sort has uh, any invention, what kind of, and it could be, a one could say it's a pessimistic view of, uh, view of the world, but it's really about when we look at an invention and point it towards others and say, this invention, I'm going to solve you. It usually leads to destruction. That's my personal opinion. When we look at invention and point it towards us, ourselves, and say, let me use it to improve myself, uh, and when I say improve myself more in terms of you know, philosophically, like in, internally rather than externally, uh, uh-huh. that's when uh, it's a no, yeah. Yeah, Erwin um, Schrodinger wrote uh, in his book, My View of the World, that the, the real problem of the last century is that crass, unfettered egoism has raised its head um, Mm -hmm. along with technological advancement. Um, In other words, human beings, of course, um, as we've advanced in our understanding and knowledge of the way the world works, um, have had this egoistic uh, feeling of dominance over it. (laughs) (laughs) And rather than... um, being one with nature or being closer to it have come to assume this position of superiority as separate from nature. Right. right. Um, and that he argued would be our undoing, of course, yeah. as we continue to just project our technological desires outward. Um, it ultimately is uh, at risk of being destructive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then this is concept of the great filter, right? The context of Fermi paradox. Mm hmm. Right, which uh, basically says that, yeah, I mean, at the end of it, there's something which prevents uh, uh, the quote-unquote intelligent civilizations to never make through because uh, the question is, where are the aliens, basically, right? Uh, So, so, uh, yeah, that's exactly what Fermi's paradox talk about. Maybe there is a great filter because if you do not use that intelligence in a certain way, it basically self-destructs you after a while, and that's where you don't hear them, see them around. Um, then to quote Elon Musk here, we must pass that filter because uh, and he sees like social media as an limbic amplifier, which is uh-huh. basically inherently de- uh, destabilizing civilization. Uh-huh. Right. So, yeah, so there is that. I mean, absolutely. You know, when you don't use it smartly. You are giving nuclear power in the hands of a common man. Mm. Right. Uh, which can be uh, very dangerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. Yeah, we've we've had that fear before, um, even with yeah. the printing press, and you know, ultimately, newspapers and other sense-making organs became fairly responsible third estates in the development of our civilizations. So maybe 
um, even social media can grow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, I think okay. the leaders. I don't know need if to... the advertising model. No, the, the leaders will need to grow up though too, right? Yeah. Social media leaders in general are still yeah. immature as human beings by age only. Nothing like forget anything else, just by age of experience. So probably for social media to grow up, its leaders will need to grow up. Just get more gray hair, right? And yeah, and you know, I mean, at the end, we are basically standing at the crossroads where being humans or what makes us human is getting harder day by day, you know, because any of our unique aspects are either being discovered in animals or by, are being invented in machines. <laughs> right? so, <laughs> Chris, this is the response next time your wife is mad at you. Being human is hard enough. There's no distinguishing factor between me, the machine and the animal. <laughs> Yeah, don't you too. <laughs> Actually, Munit, I think we should let you go home with that one. You're the newlywed still, comparatively. Let us report back to us on how that answer goes. I think we could probably talk about the subject for hours, um, especially with you, but I wanted people to get a lens and, and glimpse into your brain because I see you as you know, one of the transformational leaders in tech um, that is up and coming. And so while everybody doesn't know your name today, I think at least the tech community certainly will over the next 20 years. And I wanted to kind of get ahead of that curve and have you on the episode. Uh, well, I guess if you're talking, I, didn't we just disqualify intelligence? <laughs> we, we, we did, we have, we have, we have, Thanks. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And at least the, the, the six-year-old in me, the pattern recognizer, the, the six-year-old definition uh, recognizes there's something really unique about the patterns that you talk about with clarity. Um, so I wanted to thank you and, uh, for joining us today. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of Market Meditations with Chris Idell and myself, Neil Modi. We hope that you enjoyed this episode and we encourage you to send questions and comments and just thoughts in general. Um, about this episode, questions for the people we had on the, the episode, and in general, um, we hope that uh, you continue to ride along with us. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us five stars on the platform you found us on. Talk to you soon.